Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive politics has a lot to offer the modern world. I'm your host, Hannah Shah, and today I'm joined by Steph Lloyd to discuss just what the f*** is going on. And to tear you up even more in the second half of this episode, and to coincide with today's climate march, we have Stefan's interview with Alice Bell from 1010 UK on how to communicate the fact that, chlorinated chicken or not, we're all screwed if we don't act now on the ecological crisis facing our planet. Now, I don't know about you, Steph, but it seems like we're stuck in a series of repetitive and painful events. Not unlike the Saw films, it feels like we've had various politicians choosing to chop bits of themselves off as part of a tortured and messy game that's making us all cringe. I really enjoy the drawn-out Saw metaphor of which you did there. For people that don't know, there are a series of really vile horror films. And there was a wonderful discussion in the office earlier where Hedda was like, guys, name me a really bad trilogy of films. <laughs> and what we've discovered is... Even the trilogies that did exist have almost all been extended because apparently nobody has any original ideas anymore. Um, Pretty much, yeah. But however, I mean, the fun fact is that I actually spent all of Christmas watching the Saw films because that felt like a really nice break from politics, (laughs) which I think says it all. I definitely watched a lot of them as a child because my dad quite liked watching them. And I'm not sure whether that had a psychological effect on me or not, but hey, hey, we'll, we'll find out. Um, sinister that very sinister I think that says it all so I mean we've had meaningful votes one and two and to me it seems like we haven't really got anywhere or have we well we have and we haven't in exactly the same way so nothing has changed and everything has changed but yep so we had meaningful vote part two this the sequel week. the sequel yeah we're gonna we might get a bad trilogy that might be a thing that occurs but we'll talk about that in a little bit so obviously this week was when the meaningful vote went back to parliament mm-hmm. uh, so that took place on tuesday night and it was resoundingly defeated again so not as it they had brought some people over onto their side we did a sweepstake in the office of which i won uh in terms of how much we thought it would fall by but it was still a i mean it is still an unbelievably substantial defeat of which she's which she had faced in terms of her deal. We then move forward to last night, 
which basically became a circus in every sense of the word. So basically the, the, the sequence of events and how it was going to work, we were always going to have the meaningful vote part two on her deal just in and as it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were no amendments that were put forward to that. It was a straight vote on the deal. Uh, do we want it? Yes or no? Everybody resoundedly voted no. Um, then we moved on to last night of do we want no deal? And it was that idea that obviously Labour have been very strongly pushing that at no point should we have a deal the ERG on the conservative side think that we should definitely have a deal. Uh, we should definitely have no deal and that'd be great because they're all really rich. So it doesn't matter if they don't stockpile their food. And so that came down and there were a remarkable amount of, I feel like shenanigans is the best way of which to describe that's, that's this. That's a good word. I like the um, word shenanigans. And, you know, there's some kind of, there's some real detail in terms of, you know, the government ended up whipping against their own motion, half of the cabinet and then didn't even barely vote with the motion and the government whip. Spellman, uh, so Caroline Spellman, who was the MP that had put forward basically what happened last night and the crux of the issue was you had uh, the motion put forward by the government, which was, well, we'll have no deal. We'll say that we don't want a deal, but the legal default is still that we will go and leave without a deal unless the vote unless some form of deal is passed through before the 29th of March. There was then an amendment put down by Caroline Spellman and various other people within the House that said, no, at no point do we want to have no deal. So this is not just about in between now and the 29th of March. This is at no point ever do we want there to not be a deal. Now, the interesting thing about this is is a couple of things. One is this wasn't binding. So this wasn't like the meaningful vote. There was, this was an indicative vote, but it wasn't meaningful in that sense as it didn't change legislation yeah the second part of it was that caroline spellman basically caved in and tried to withdraw her amendment after it'd been selected now once it's been selected it's in the property of the house it's not the property of her so hero of the hour yvette cooper stands up to move the motion and that motion passes narrowly only by about four votes but it passes now this means that the house has said at no point does it want no deal because that motion had then been changed the government then whipped against that motion, which was that they wanted. So bearing in mind, Philip Hammond had stood up that day for the spring statement yeah. and said, no deal would be disastrous for this country. Yeah. The government then whipped to still keep no deal as an option on the table, which also fell. Um, and just on that note, if you haven't seen it already, Alison McGovern recorded a great video basically explaining about the spring statement and why it's a thing and why austerity is bad. You should definitely all watch it. It's on Twitter. Yeah. So we've then got more votes today. Yeah. So obviously we're recording the podcast on Thursday. You'll be listening tomorrow morning. (laughs) Literally who knows what is going to happen. (laughs) Uh, And anybody who says they do is lying. They do not know. We then now have a vote today on whether or not we should extend Article 50. So Article 50 is obviously the bit of legislation. Yeah. uh, And we are meant to leave in accordance to Article 50 on the 29th of March. And there are four amendments that have been put down for that. Yes, there are. Um, And they are one of the people's vote. Yeah. Yeah. So the first first one of those is uh, uh, there's lots of various different, you know, so this is uh, Amendment H. Uh, So basically it's by the independent group uh, and a few other people, um, which basically says we should have an extension to Article 50 and the purpose for that should be a people's vote. Mm. Um, You've then got the second one, which is Amendment I. Um, which is basically by Hilary Benn, one of a let win. Um, and Yvette Cooper again. And Yvette Cooper, the hero of the hour. High five for Yvette. 
And this is all basically saying there should be an extension. However, this should be. So there's a series of indicative votes. What we've not had at any point, the government keeps saying, well, you can't vote for something. You have to vote for, you can't vote against something. You have to vote for something. Yeah. They're not actually really giving people the opportunity to do that. So this is about a series of indicative votes that would happen next week in parliament and that the government would have to make time for those votes to happen. You've then got the third, which is the Labour front bench amendment. Uh, so that is about having an extension and it's about being able to find a majority within the House that would likely be pushing for their deal rather than Theresa May's deal. Uh, and then you've got uh, Amendment J, which basically says, because rumour has it that, you know, Theresa May is going to do a meaningful vote three next week, which would make it go. part of a wonderful trilogy. Um, and uh, basically Amendment J says... One of the rules, so we don't have like a, a written constitution, we have a no. codified constitution. Uh, and part of that basically means there's a very big book uh, by Erskine May, uh, which states the kind of rules of parliament. Yeah, but, what's historically happened, right? And part yeah. of that is basically the government cannot just keep putting down the same motions if nothing has changed, Yeah, which is what they keep trying to do. So Jay is the wonderful Alison McGovern, who is obviously... Uh, a uh, hero of this podcast, um, is is one of the signatories on that. And it basically says, you cannot keep just trying to force this vote through. It is against the way that we do things as the House. And like, you've lost it twice now. It's gone. It's dead. Yeah. Forget about it. So who knows where we're going to quite end up on yeah. that. And I think really quickly, just to jump back to E and the Labour frontbench amendment. Yeah. I think what is a really interesting part about that is obviously it essentially says... We should have an extension, but it's clear that May's withdrawal agreement hasn't been successful. Mm -hmm. So we have to negotiate our own. Yes. Um, chances of us like having a general election and then negotiating our own withdrawal agreement? I mean, who knows? I mean, firstly, yeah, for us to be able to do that, we would have to be in government. Um, that still feels, I mean, it doesn't feel quite as far away as it has done previously. Yeah. I think, you know, we'll go on to talk about the kind of events of last night and what that means for Theresa May as a government uh, in a little moment. But um, yeah, they would have to do that. I mean, their vote, they have already put their um, plan to Parliament a number mm. of times uh, and that they, they have lost that on those occasions. Now, granted, it is significantly less than the government has lost theirs, um, but they have still lost that. Uh, so there is there is no real... Uh, kind of clear way through in terms of that. I think kind of far more likely um, would be something around the indicative votes um, as to giving some form of consensus or way through this. Um, I think it is uh, interesting that they've put down a people's vote motion. It's obviously what I think is probably going to be the best way out in terms of either a people's vote or some form of confirmation vote in yeah. terms of that and going back to the people. Whether now is the right time to do that. I, I don't think is necessarily true, mm. um, but we will see what happens. I think the important thing to think about with this, though, is if that does fall, I don't think that is necessarily the, it's certainly not the end of a no, people's vote in terms all. of how that works or some form of confirmatory vote in yeah. terms of going back to the people. Lots of people will try and jump all over that and say that is the case. Um, but there are lots of people who say, I want to get through a sequence of events yeah. if there is... Yeah. If we can't get through that, then I would move to that position. And so it's still all on the table in terms of that. Yeah. And and I mean, in exactly the same way that on Wednesday night, the House said they want they wanted no, no deal. Mm. In the same way, if this amendment falls, it's not binding in any way. It just says right now the House doesn't necessarily think 
a public vote is the best way forward. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean that they can't change their minds. Mm. It is obviously the sort of preface of this entire uh, conversation that we're having. I want to move on quickly to talk about how what we saw on Wednesday night basically shows how fundamentally weak Theresa May is. Um, so as you said, the Tories ended up whipping against themselves in this sort of bizarre thing where the amendment passed and then Theresa May went, oh God, now we can't let the motion that we put forward pass, so we'll have to whip against it. Um, and they still lost. The government were voting against themselves and they still lost. So she can't really even seem to get people to disagree with her anymore, which I think is phenomenal. Mm. What do you think the events of Wednesday night tell us about May as a prime minister? I think it's abundantly clear that her prime ministership in one way or another is now over. And I think I think she now knows that probably for the first time in terms of how that is. I think she will try and do, she will cling on to try and get whatever she can through over the next couple of months. But beyond that, I can't imagine a situation where she doesn't, uh, where she doesn't leave at some point. Um, I think, you know, it was even the optics of it, bless her, with her kind of comedy cough that went through and how painful, I mean, God. you could hear the pain in her voice, right? And I have a level of sympathy because anybody who knows me will know the sheer level of like angst that I get in my voice and the pain I get if we do big conferences or anything yeah. else. It gets very painful. I have a lot of sympathy for that. But the metaphor of which she was stood there and she could barely even get a word out, I think really just is is the most symbolic kind of picture that we can have of just how dead this government is. The idea that you can be a government minister and vote against your own government and your own motions and your own plan shows that basically right now we don't really have a government. Yeah, I think Anna Turley, um, fantastic Labour MP, tweeted about saying to the whips that she had a soothers and the whips going, oh no, don't worry, it'll all be fine, everything is fine, nothing has changed. Um, but Joke side though, obviously, as you mentioned, so a couple of high-profile people within the government and indeed within the cabinet, so for example, Amber Rudd um, of recent Coloured People fame, um, chose to abstain on the motion. And obviously we have a thing in this country, or we used to, um, as part of our unwritten constitution called collective responsibility. The idea that the government or the cabinet makes decisions as a group and they all back the prime minister up and then if one of them disagrees with the course of action the Prime Minister has chosen, they're sort of morally and politically required to resign. Now, it seems like Amber Rudd is still in her job, even though she fundamentally disagrees, it seems, with May's course of action. Mm -hmm. And to be perfectly honest, we've just got incompetence coming out of our ears now. Like the fact we have Chris Grayling and Karen Bradley holding on, despite being utter failures of ministers, is surely a case to say that the government's basically done. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there is any... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The way out of the situation they have now got themselves into. I think the thing that is even, is even more scary in one sense is, I mean, you look at the sheer level of incompetence as you say, a total lack of collective responsibility as a government. They can't even, they can't get anything through in terms of what they want to do. And yet still they are the ones in power. And when you look at the polls, they are still the ones that people trust the most. Which for me is is the most terrifying thing. But also, Mm. you know, if the Labour leadership, I mean, you know, hardly their biggest fan, but if they are not able to look at that and see there is a serious problem I would, I would be genuinely worried. And honestly, I think if if people like Keir Starmer were not there and the real talent that we see on the back benches um, of the Labour Party and people like Alison, Peter Carl and Phil Wilson and Pat McGovern uh, and Hilary Benn and Yvette Cooper who have been, you know, constantly yeah. trying to make this work. If they were not there, I dread to think just how bad a state <laughs> we would be in um, because they are the kind of grown-ups in the room that have the ability to take this forward yeah. and they are not putting their head in the sand and they are making very difficult decisions in order to get the best for this country going forwards. Um, but yeah, I mean, the idea that someone as senior in the Conservative Party as Amber Rudd can do that and still be in government uh, is is truly remarkable. But it does make a slight step change from a uh, not having a racist gaffe this week in terms of Amber Rudd. <laughs> not, There's a not little, yet. little theme song that we sing in the office about it, but that's for another day. <laughs> um, so last thing, looking forward to MV3, the final chapter, we hope, touch wood, maybe not. Um, what can we expect? Like I know Westminster pundits are sort of currently more Professor Trelawney than like Nostradamus. Um, but looking into your tea leaves, Steph, did you ever go? I think that's about the most accurate response <laughs> I think I could ever give. I, I honestly don't know what will yeah. happen because particularly with things like the amendment tonight where it blocks MV3 next week, we're really going to have to see where that where that lands. Yeah. Um, but there is going to, I think, I think what might be most likely is the idea that we get we get into a situation where we can have some form of, there will be an extension and we have some form of indicative votes just to see anything that can be kind of scrambled together for some form of majority um but yeah so i think i think that is probably what's going to be the most likely outcome of this um and it's probably going to be the best outcome for the country we then have to probably we then have to look at once we've got that idea of what could give a way forward mm-hmm. of being able to take that back for some form of confirmatory vote to the people fingers crossed okay let's leave it there um, and go back to, I know, trying to stop Brexit or panicking or whatever it is we do at the moment. On that cheery note, we're going to take a quick break. Now, just before we hear from Stefan speak to Alice Bell from 1010 UK about how to avoid climate catastrophe, it's obviously looming. 
Just a reminder that if you enjoy this podcast, please share it. Share it with your friends, colleagues, milkmen, lollipop ladies, frenemies, you know, Instagram mates, whatever. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, review. Our planet is dying, not in 10, 50 or 100 years, but as we speak. Right now, as you're listening to this podcast, we are doing irreversible damage to our planet that future generations will have to pay for. Are you scared yet? If you're struggling to feel the fear, you're not alone. One of the biggest hurdles to saving our planet is connecting the academic facts about climate change with its real devastating consequences. And on that cheery note, today I'm speaking to Alice Bell, co-director of 1010 Climate Action, to talk about how we can shift the political and policy consensus to a place where we can address this unprecedented national emergency. So to kick us off, could you give us a sense of how far we are from where we need to be on climate action? I'm going to start with a positive. Okay. <laughs> and that um, in terms of where we need to be, in terms of having the tools to be able to tackle it, I think we're we're doing all right. There are some things that still need a fair bit of, uh, of technological development. Um, one of the ways in which we are I'm getting onto the negative already. <laughs> One of the ways in which we're far behind is that we need to invest a lot more in R&D in particular areas, things like battery storage, um, heat, decarbonizing heat is one of the big challenges, particularly in the UK. And if we're going to do this in a way that isn't going to continue to burn a lot of fossil fuels, but also isn't going to leave people literally out in the cold, and that will also mean, I mean, let's be blunt, dying um then we need to find we need to put a lot more money into thinking about hydrogen um how we can um have more efficient things like heat pumps and the electrification of heat but but i'm going to go back to the positives i mean there are some very basic things that we know we can we can do we're just not doing it yet mm -hmm. so again i'm going back to the negative we're not doing it and so i guess where the biggest gap is is in terms of political will and attached to that, I think public engagement and public, it's not that the public aren't aware, especially in the UK, um, climate scepticism is still very much a niche hobby. Uh, we're in Tufton Street, Global Warming Policy Foundation are just down the road, but still they are unusual. They yeah. are, that, that is an unusual position to take. You might not think it looking at some of the editorials in some of the newspapers, but if you survey the UK public generally, they believe climate change is happening. Mm. They believe that humans are causing it and they believe that we need to take action. It's just when you ask them what they're most worried about or the thing that's at the front of their mind when they're doing their shopping or voting or angry at the newspapers or whatever, it's not climate change. And I mean, that, that I think is where we're really far behind on. Yeah. And I think, and so I want to ask you about something about going from that knowing to the kind of knowing the devastating consequences of climate change to feeling it. And one example I have of this, which is completely far removed and slightly ridiculous, is walking through the streets of London with my, one of my friends. Um, we remarked on the amount of dog mess there was on the street and kind of how disruptive it was and how annoying it was and how much it could ruin your day if you were to step in it. And my friend reflected that this was actually a consequence of cuts to local government and if our local government was funded properly, we'd have less mess on the streets. And in that moment, there's this kind of visceral feeling and a strong connection between that kind of academic policy stuff that I knew about and I knew kind of how bad austerity was and how much it was ruining people's lives. And then this almost banal interaction with dog mess on the street suddenly kind of made it a lot more real. So <laughs> without calling it kind of the dog poo problem, which I don't <laughs> want to coin as a phrase, um, 
how do we get people to wake up and see the consequences of climate change in their day-to-day lives in a way that's much more serious, obviously? Well, that is one of the big challenges of climate change, um, one of the big challenges of climate comms. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I used to work in science communication generally for many years, and I shifted to, to be specifically in climate stuff. It's partly because I'm really scared. Uh, I mean, let's be... I, I've got a colleague who says, once you start looking at climate change, you can't really look away. And I got that problem. Um, but it's also that it is actually really interesting and it's a massive challenge. It's, it's I think, so much more challenging than a lot of other uh, social and political issues as well as science communication issues. There isn't a dog mess equivalent. Mm. Um, there are other sort of proxies for that. I mean, there is flooding. Um, there was the weird heat wave we had recently. People, yeah. and what's different in the last few years is people are making the connections between that and climate change uh, more confidently mm-hmm. and more quickly. And more and more people are doing that. I mean, that's another positive in terms of how far we are away. We do know that this is happening and it isn't obvious. It's one of the things that I find gives me hope about climate change is that really climate change is not obvious. You need a lot of quite specialist and diverse, multidisciplinary, complicated Mm -hmm. scientific research to see it. Mm -hmm. And yet us humans, you know, we are clever and stupid enough to have got ourselves into this mess, but we're also clever enough to have actually spotted it. And we spotted it like quite a long time ago, which is also depressing that we haven't done anything about it, but, or we haven't done enough about it, but you know, we have, we have the science there to to warn us. Mm -hmm. It's just getting everyone to see that on an everyday level, because the ways in which scientists have piece this together to be able to see it are, are mm. dazzlingly, beautifully, inspiringly complicated. Mm. And so most of us don't see it. Um, so, I mean, I think it is about talking about the we- talking about climate change when we talk about the weather. Climate and weather are different, but that doesn't mean that they can't be part of the same conversation. It's about having a lot more global news and being aware of a lot more global agendas. You know, we can be very parochial in the UK, uh, I mean, like most countries, but particularly the UK, you know, we only really care about what happens. I mean, I think too much of our media only really cares about what happens in Westminster, let alone the whole of the country, let alone the whole of the world. But there are ways in which climate change is more and more obvious in other parts of the world. In Mm. some ways in the UK, we get off a bit lightly. And I think a more global conversation, I think part of the reason why younger people are more attuned to climate change issues is partly because they have more of a stake in more of the future than older people. And it's also because they've always grown up with it. Like, I mean, you don't have to be even that young to have always grown up with fear of climate change, but certainly people who are in their teens and their 20s now, it's like not only did they all grow up with it, but so did their teachers. Um, So it's not so new. But I think it's also that they are more connected internationally. And they have, you look at the climate strikers at the moment and you can see, like if you follow them on Twitter, you can see the UK ones retweeting the Ugandan one and Nigerian one and the American ones. And they're all talk, having this amazing international conversation. And I think that is one of the things that we need to do in order for all of us to be a little bit more aware of it. And having that conversation right now with Brexit going on, it seems to be taking up so much of the national conversation. And I just wonder, in terms of the broader goals of that, that progressive movement, where does climate change fit into that? Is there a sense in which climate change can address some of the underlying causes of the vote to leave the European Union in a way that can kind of insert itself into the national conversation? Um, I think it'll aggravate it. I think one of the depressing things and one of the reasons why so many people should be concerned about climate change is that it will make everything else we want to do harder. So if you care about social issues, if you care about gender issues, if you care about economic inequality, if you care about racism, you need to care about climate change. And all the other things that we want to sort will be made harder because of climate change. 
So I guess that I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to bring it back to Downer, but I think that is how climate change will insert itself. And w- the way in which Brexit is inserting itself into the climate change debate is it's a massive distraction. Um, it's become almost banal to say this because people keep repeating it, but it's true, which is we should be spending now, this year, 2019, should be the massive year of climate action. I mean, 2009 should have been, 1999 should have been, but 2019 really, really should be. It should not be about talking about Brexit. Mm. And actually Britain did a lot of, brilliant things on international climate action through the EU. People think a lot of the stories were spun as environmental um, rules were pushed on Britain by the EU, but actually Britain was a a big um, advocate for climate action in the EU. And so that's another thing that's sort of a bit worrying about us moving out of it. Although I think there are other actors in the EU that have taken up that role. Okay, and and looking um, across the Atlantic, people who follow American politics will see a lot of chat at the moment about the Green New Deal. Um, I guess, could you start by giving us a summary of what you understand as the Green New Deal when it's talked about in America? In America? Well, I mean, there's two threads to it. One is it, one of the things that's quite um, exciting about it is the way that they are managing to connect uh, environmental issues particularly climate change to other social and political issues and talk about what in the uk we sometimes call a just transition um so there's been some a few people um writing about it recently talking about it as environmentalism with trumpian characteristics there's been a couple of different writers in the states slightly trolling the environmentalist movement by saying that but there are ways in which they're talking about industrial policy which I, I mean, I don't think it's particularly fair to call it Trumpian. And also, I don't think we should call that approach to industrial policy. He doesn't own it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's the fact that it's talking about economic issues and it's talking about jobs and it's talking about industrial policy in a way that actually most environmental policymakers have always been. But when you get a lot of the green rhetoric, it sometimes falls apart. And certainly people who aren't part of the green movement, often their perception of the green movement is it's about hugging trees. It's not about British jobs or American jobs. So they made, they're shifting the debate around environment to be a lot more about that. They're putting racial equality at the core of it as well and talking about racial inequality around that. I mean, bits of it are, it slightly depends on which bit of the Green New Deal conversation you're having. But the other really important thing is it's um, it's a public debate and it's a debate that's involving lots of different groups. So it come, came from this group called the Sunrise Movement. And we've seen news recently about young people um, protesting uh, politicians and then being told to go away. And that's part and parcel of the fact that it's people coming to their political representatives and pushing it that way. So in some ways it is a very much grassroots movement. Um, rather than what we have seen with some forms of environmental policy discussions before, which have been quite top down. And what some way of thinking about environmental policy making is that it's very top down. It comes from the e- the, the UN talked to the EU and then the EU talked to the member states and the member states talked to the pub- to their constituents. And it, I mean, often that's not how it works at all. Um, it's much more complicated like that, like any form of policy making. But um, the Green New Deal is very explicitly turning that kind of top down approach on its head. Uh, and that's interesting, I think, for everyone around the world to be looking at that sort of model. And I guess another interesting aspect of the Green New Deal is its name, the Green New Deal. And, you know, talking about where the New Deal in America came from in the 30s. And part of that was around the around the war effort. And one of the things about a war effort is that people kind of take on this collective responsibility, a personal responsibility, and whether policies are convenient or economically convenient or politically convenient fades into the background because you've got this huge overwhelming threat that you need to deal with and it kind of reorders your priorities. And I guess the Green New Deal kind of tries to tell that story of realising what a huge threat this is and reordering our national priorities. 
does Britain have a story, I guess, in terms of how we could communicate it, but like what, what is our national story and what is our national answer to this threat? We could look to history and I've heard few, a few people in the last year or so talking about whether we need to demand the government puts itself on a war footing and forms a coalition government similar to what we had in, in World War II. Um, I don't know if that is actually what we need to do practically, but also I'm not sure if looking to the past is, is a good idea. I mean, it can be very powerfully powerful in terms of your political rhetoric. I think the Green New Deal is a beautiful bit of uh, of policy. It's a nice, it's a nice soundbite. It's a nice way, a nice way of, as I said earlier about, it's a connection about environmental policy, but also industrial policy. And I think calling it the Green New Deal does that work for it. So it's looking to a specific bit of history, which was talking about jobs. Um, and I don't know if we have the same sort of equivalent. Other people have also talked about whether we should think of it as a, a bit like the National Health Service. Mm. It's something that we all love and British people get behind. Do we need a, a climate service? Except it wouldn't necessarily work like that because health is different from climate change. Um, so I'm a bit worried about, and I think climate change is also different from war. And we should be really careful about thinking about climate change in terms of war. It's a different thing. And we're probably best served by thinking about climate change as its own issue and what it needs. Um, so what we need in the 21st century, I mean, a big part of the problems of British politics in the last few decades has been how obsessed we are with the beginning and middle of the 20th century mm. and our slightly odd ideas of what that was. Mm. Um, I think we should start looking forward rather than backward. It's tempting. I know when we're sort of looking and we're terrified about what the 2050s and 2080s might look like to do that, because, I mean, I am terrified of what they look like. And it's sort of tempting to retreat into a particular idea of the past. But I, I think we'll be best if we if we manage to look forward, not backwards. Um, I think we'll be limited if we try and mould whatever policy asks we want of the British government onto some kind of historical uh, precedent. Do we have, do you think we have the tools um, to move the political consensus in a way that if not comparing it to past wars is similar in terms of the abrupt shift in policy consensus do we have the tools to move the politicians you know that severely and that quickly in a way that will address climate change in the way it needs to be i think we have the tools i don't know if we have the means and um i i mean it's hard to, we need a rap, we do need a very rapid shift um and I think it'll take a lot of different tactics to get there. I think the climate strikes are an example of how things can shift quite rapidly. I think the debate on plastics uh, last year and the year before that were also an example of how things can shift quite rapidly and how environmental issues can make themselves into the mainstream and interrelate with all sorts of other social and cultural things. Um, I mean, yeah, I think we sort of probably need the, the plastics debate times 20 about <laughs> climate change. But I... I I don't know what the tools are exactly. If I did, then we'd be doing it. Um, but I am, I am confident that we have, well, we either have the means. I'm confident that we can do it. I, I don't know if we will. Um, it will take a lot. The reason why I'm hesitating on this is that it becomes very complicated when you start talking about what those tools and means might be, sure. because it has to be done on so many different fronts. If we're going to use a war metaphor, we have to be fighting on so many different uh, yeah. fronts at the same time. And so many different identities and networks and individuals and communities have to be involved in so many different ways. Yeah. I can see that happening. Um I mean, some people think about whether it'll be like a, a giant weather event is what will spur us into action. And occasionally climate activists sort of sit around and sort of imagine what might happen. And there's, I remember reading a kid's book that was published about 20 years ago about um, massive floods um, hitting um, 
England and then England bringing in sort of carbon rationing for the first time. And, you know, there's, is this sort of where you might imagine that it would be prompted by a big weather event? I'm not so sure that that would actually help us. I've got an old colleague from the University of Sussex who used to say, you know, people don't necessarily make the best decisions when they're scared. And I think, you know, if the country is flooded, if we're dealing with all sorts of other social and economic problems off the back of Brexit, I can't see us being in the, then I really can't see us having the means or the tools to be able to, to make the shifts um, that we need to. So if, if hope is the best driver for this, what is a, a policy, um, a policy wish list that we could be hopeful for in, in summary, what are these, you know, if people obviously want action on climate change, but we don't always know what that means as political activists, because we're not closely engaged with it what does that policy wish list look like in a general sense well there, we have to fight on a lot of different fronts and that also means a lot of different types of policy climate change has to weave its way through all sorts of different areas um, some easy wins to start off with things that the government could do pretty soon is we could start having extreme investment in the uk on energy efficiency that would arguably boost our economy and it seems a bit silly as to why we're not doing it uh, we need to lift the ban on onshore wind because, I mean, I, your listeners may not be aware of the fact that there is a ban on onshore wind in England. Uh, every now and again, I say it to people and they look at me and like, no, 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 no. Yes, there is. There is. Um, it was one of those things that the Conservatives put in their manifesto when maybe they didn't think they were going to win, like some other <laughs> things they might put in their manifesto. And they Couldn't didn't. think of what. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, there's certainly appetite within the government to lift that ban. You can... I know there is. Um, it's just whether they can get it through. And obviously people are distracted with other things. Um, but those are some basic things that we could do. Um, Britain could, uh, Britain has a lot of opportunity, could make a lot of its onshore wind capacity. And we could also, we should also have policies that support community energy. That's really vital if we're going to build the amount of renewable energy that we need in a way that is not going to make people feel alienated by it. One of the most people in the UK love onshore wind. It's a myth that they don't, but in the small places where they don't, it's I think a big part of it's because it's been forced upon them and they haven't been involved in it. So we need to see policies that really support the community groups that want to take ownership of their energy. And and how does a just transition, you mentioned that phrase earlier, how does that fit into that landscape? So that's that's part of it is community energy needs to be a big part of it. Another thing I was going to say in terms of adding things that we need to do is thinking about retraining. We also need to take a lot of money out of the oil and gas industry. So we've seen the divestment campaigns. There's a divest parliament campaign to divest the, the pensions in parliament. But more seriously, in terms of the money that runs through Westminster, uh, we need to stop subsidizing oil and gas in the way that we do. But that will lead to people losing their jobs. And so we need to ensure that they have other jobs and that they have, we have decent retraining systems. There's a lot of opportunities for offshore oil and gas to transfer into offshore wind. We need to be making the most of those opportunities. And where does your work at 1010 fit into this fight? We are focused on engaging the public with action on climate change. Um, so we appreciate that there's lots of, as I said, there's, we've got to have a uh, we've got to fight this on lots of different fronts and the place that we specialize in is engaging the public and we do that partly to unlock other other areas whether it's policy makers or industry to also be interested to see that the public is let the public take a lead and, and we'll know that other actors will follow but it's also that they're important in their own right so we do a lot of community energy work or work with community energy groups um, we've got a really exciting i think our two most exciting projects we've got at the moment one is our work on solar railways um, which actually came out of a community group um, in the southeast of England in Sussex who wanted to build a community-owned solar farm. It's the village of Borkham, which are most famous for being the first anti-fracking protests uh, about six years ago. 
And they came out of the anti-fracking protest quite bruised by that experience. Um, and they wanted to do something positive. So they wanted to build community solar. Um, and the way in fracking had sort of divided the town and solar brought them together. It's, it's a really, really, <laughs> lovely, someone to make a movie about this story. It's lovely. Anyway, they were looking for places to plug their solar, community owned, locally owned solar farm in, but the grid was at uh, capacity around there. So they couldn't find anywhere to plug it in. And then they noticed that it's, the town is bisected by um, the, the railway and they were, the, it's an electric powered railway. And they looked at it and went, could we just plug our solar farm into the railways? And luckily an electrical engineer lived nearby. So they said, can we do this? And he answered in, with a load of engineering speak that only a few people understood. But basically the answer was mm, ish. So we managed to put those two groups together um, and we worked with them on a grant from Innovate UK and did a feasibility study. And basically, long story short, we should have some solar powered railways by the end of this year or early 2020. And they will be commuter owned solar farms that will be powering your trains. So your train, the train companies might be privatized, but the electricity <laughs> it runs on will be run owned by the commuters. And um, so that's one of the most really exciting projects we're doing. Um, and I, we hope we also probably will be extending that to the electrification of the railways in South Wales, which could be wind powered. And again, I was saying um, it's really important we involve communities in where we site large renewables, whether it's um, wind or solar. Um, and particularly with wind, I think that will mean that those communities can think about where they want the wind that's going to be powering their trains to go. The other really cool thing we're doing is on heat decarbonisation. Um, we're working with Hackney Council to look into the feasibility of putting heat pumps under parks. So anyone who lives near a park will probably know the problem of the park being closed for a bit because of a concert, because the park needs to make money. Or they'll notice that the opening hours have shifted or different projects that used to happen in the park aren't happening because they've been cut. So it's a real challenge to think about how we're going to fund our parks. And this is a way to help us fund our parks, but also involve the public in decarbonisation at the same time. So heat pumps are a technology which, I don't know, have you ever seen a heat pump? No, no. Okay. I'd never seen a heat pump until my colleague was like, let's talk about heat pumps. And I was like, well, nurse this thing. And I asked some friends and some of them that lived in the countryside were like, oh, I know heat pumps. So in the countryside, they're a bit more common because, well, you have heat pumps, a bit, they work a bit like a reverse fridge. In fact, they discovered a heat pump when someone just turned a fridge around and burnt themselves. Um, but it kind of, it takes heat from either the air or water or the ground and then makes more heat from it, which you can use to warm, to heat a whole home or sure. another building. Um, in fact, there's a really cool project in Old Street, which is trying to take heat from the tube. So exciting. Anyway, <laughs> there's plenty on there. <laughs> exactly. And it will also, this is so exciting. Anyway, the project that we're working with Hackney will take um, heat from the ground and ground source heat pumps need quite a lot of space. So people will have them where they have space, but we don't have much space in, in the cities. But parks are space. So we can install the heat pumps under the park um, the local groups that use the park could be involved in when we do it, how we do it, if we do it, learning what on earth a heat pump is in the process. Yeah. And then that gives a revenue stream for the parks. So we used to have this great project called Solar Schools, which kind of does what it says on the tin. <laughs> it was schools getting involved, uh, getting their communities involved to fundraise for solar. And loads of people in the community who couldn't install solar on their own roof for whatever reason could help install it in the school. This we hope will have a similar, could be a similar project, but have heat pumps and allow people an opportunity to engage with low carbon tech that otherwise they just read about in newspapers. Yeah. Um, so we're really excited about that. And it's also a good example of how taking action on climate change can offer all sorts of other benefits. Mm. It'll, you know, potentially it'll keep community centers open in the parks. It'll have all sorts of other things. Well, I wanted to ask you about this because you mentioned earlier your background is in science communication and for full disclosure, mine is as well. So we both have special interest in this subject. Um, Many of our listeners might not know an awful lot about science communication or have experienced a lot of it. Um, is it political for you? Because it, 
it is for me that the idea of science communication and empowering people is there your work kind of seems like this overlap where science communication and politics and the interest in empowering people collides well climate change is one of those areas where it's quite obvious how uh engineering and science and policy and culture people often forget the culture bit of this they go oh it's politics and science you're like your culture's a big part of this too <laughs> um and yeah, economics all these things combine um but i think that's true of anything i mean it science itself um is you know it's political as to what gets funded just because you're not necessarily looking at uh you're not necessarily learning how a particular chemical reaction works through the lens of ideology although mm. people have in the past that doesn't mean that there isn't politics that go on there's micropolitics in the lab over who you're going to employ mm. you know it's huge issues to do with diversity in science um then there's political decisions that are made at places like bays about what we fund so I, I don't feel that my work in climate change is necessarily more political it is more obviously political sure. um but it's not necessarily any more political and just to finish off um and you mentioned earlier that you're going to try to stray away from negativity in this conversation, but obviously that was impossible. Um, without wanting our listeners and myself personally to become complacent about the idea that there are people fighting for climate change who do have hope that we'll get through this in one way or another, how do you stay hopeful personally doing this day in, day out? Um uh, the first thing to say is that most of the time I don't. It is quite a depressing issue. <laughs> I wasn't um, hoping that was the answer. There is, um, there is something that is kind of hopeful inherently about climate change in that it's not a pass or fail issue. So it means that we, so we can't, people sometimes talk about, we're going to tackle, we're going to solve climate change. Like, we are not going to solve climate change. That boat, that diesel powered boat, <laughs> that like sailed a long time ago sure. um we are all, we've already caused over a degree of climate change and um there's all sorts of reasons why it's very challenging to keep to 1.5 degrees even let alone two but because it happens by degree by bit of degree mm. there's always uh hope i mean it will be we are a long way for there being no hope and there's also ways in which we can protect ourselves if we take more action so we think we talk about taking action on climate change to stop it and we need to do that but we also, because, partly because we know we already had a degree, over a degree happened already, um, we need to think about what we can do to tackle the climate and protect ourselves from the climate change that has already happened. So we have hope in our ability to, to do those things. Um, so there's something inherent about the fact that, that it's not a parcel fair. It's not, oh, we, we messed that up and, and now we can't mop up that milk. Well, that messed up, but there's, there's still another pint of milk over there. It's not half full or half empty. It sort of comes in different milliliters or so. I don't know. There's a right <laughs> way to think about it. But there's that. And that that does, I know I'm not the only person who, who finds hope in this sort of like, even if there's a little chink at the end of the tunnel, it's still yeah. there. Um, but then there's other things like we we have done amazing things like invent solar power and um, discover it in the first place because we could still be we could just be sitting around going oh it's a bit warm the other week wasn't it it's a bit rainy weather's a bit weird again and we you know we did notice it so there is hope in the fact that we are clever enough to have noticed it we are clever enough to have transformed our society to be as addicted to fossil fuels as it is like that is something there's something quite inspirational in the story of of like. Shell is, I mean, amazing. Like Shell is called Shell because it used to sell seashells. Sea okay. Like there used to be an old man in the East End who sold shells and that's why it's called Shell. I did Shell. not know that. And it's grown over since the 1850s hmm. into this incredible multinational that sucks oil and gas out of the ground and has incredible weird PR campaigns and gets pulled into human rights violation camp protests. Like it's, it's kind of incredible. It's awe-inspiring in the sort of 
um, old fashioned idea of awe where you're slightly terrified by it. But I think we should take inspiration from how much we've managed to transform our world as it is. It's terrifying and in some ways very, very depressing. But humans are powerful. That is something you can take from the climate story. And I think if you have some hope in humanity is not simply awful, which I understand if <laughs> difficult some people, nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> but if you have any hope in in humanity, then I think there's hope in, in our ability to tackle climate change. I didn't think we were going to find inspiration in oil companies, but I do like it. I guess, and I guess the really hopeful thing about that is that there is a direct and strong correlation between how much work each one of us does on this issue and how much less bad the results of climate change will be, which is probably all the straws we can clutch for now. But Alice, thank you so much for coming in to speak to us. Thanks for inviting me. And that's all for today, folks. Join us on Tuesday for more Brexit banter and keep your eyes peeled for Henna's pod list updates, of course. And as always, subscribe, rate and review. Have a lovely weekend. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.